welcome to the Whiskey and Roll Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Whiskey and Roll Podcast. I'm Benjamin Lindsay and with me as always is David Lynch. How you doing out there today, David? I'm doing alright, doing alright. Well, good. Today we are going to talk about the Tulsa, Oklahoma singer-songwriter John Moreland and his fifth album, LP5. Yeah, John Moreland. This is one of my favorite singer-songwriters, so I think he's a great voice and great lyric writer. Oh, yeah. As far as his ability to write lyrics, um, everybody I think that we've covered so far has been pretty good at it, but I think he stands head and shoulders. Yeah, he, and, uh, yeah he's probably the best lyric writer so far that we've talked about. I mean, and I wouldn't even go so far as to say that of his generation of, you know, alternative country or whatever you want to call it, um, that he is in the forefront. I mean, uh, he's in the Towns Van Sant, Guy Clark, Steve Earle category as far as I'm concerned, which is impressive five albums in. Right. Yeah, he's uh, – lyrically, he's up there. I mean, with, with the Jason Isbells of the world and, you know – I mean, easily yeah. top five, top ten going today, probably. Definitely. And I, I'm a huge fan of Jason Isbell as well, and I think Isbell is a great lyric writer too, but they're not very similar in the way that their their lyrics are. Isbell's are a little bit more intricate, whereas his are a bit more emotional. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different approach to lyric writing, but yeah. Yeah. It's still great, nonetheless. Oh, no, definitely. No <clears> doubt about <throat> it. Um, both guys, great. And well, I'm sure we'll do some Isbell on this podcast at some point. Um, but this is, like I said, his fifth album. It came out on 30 Tigers Records, I believe. Uh, yeah, I've, what I've got is it uh, It was Old Omens and marketed and distributed by 30 Tigers. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense, too. I need to learn more about 30 Tigers Records because they've been putting out a lot of, of this genre of stuff. There's a couple of those record labels out there that, that you can bet on almost every artist being good that's on that label. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look it up, but it was a Scott H. Byron's label. Yeah, yeah. Every, every, everybody on that label that I heard that I enjoyed. Yeah. <clears throat> and then there's this album, <laughs> which we've done a, a lot to talk about how great of a songwriter and lyric writer John Moreland is. Um, but on this album, if you don't know, if you missed the media blitz, because this has been all over, it's been talked about on NPR, Rolling Stones had a piece on it, Saving Country Music had a piece on it. So it's been, and it came out the same day as the David Allen album that we talked about last week. So February 7th. And this has gotten way more media coverage and I guess I'm just going to come out and say it, that I think the David Allen album is a better album than this one. Uh, yeah. And I, in my opinion, I'm not sure it's even close. <laughs> yeah. So kind of what happened on this one is that uh, John Moreland started playing around with, with every right to do. This is not a criticism. He started playing around with ambient music sounds and string arrangements and stuff like that and adding that to what is his normally fairly spare um, song presentation. Um, If you listen to his third album, High on Tulsa Heat, 
that one actually has a lot of different sounds in that it's not just him and a guitar, which it had kind of been on the previous albums with, you know, a little bit of a backing band. But on this album, the backing band is kind of pulled out, and it is kind of just him and his guitar, but then ambient noises, string arrangements, drum uh, tracks, and stuff like that. And I applaud the adventurousness of it, but for me, I, I found it on almost... With the exception of two tracks, I found it distracting, not enhancing the songs in any way. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. Um, I think one of the interviews I said read where he was talking about this album, he said that uh, he was a big fan of hip hop and programming drums and stuff. Uh, like, and it made it sound like he had actually done some programming for hip hop artists, and so that was part of the reason he wanted to try to incorporate these drum loops and stuff into these songs was just to kind of try something new yeah yeah i don't know about that and i uh, you had sent me that um interview and i don't remember it verbatim because i don't have it in front of me but i do remember him talking about getting basically a drum machine and playing around with it and i can remember back in the day when we had a drum machine and we liked playing around with it too so i get the appeal you can just do stuff that you never really thought that you you could do with one yeah but and I don't know that it needs to be on pretty much every track you hear new album either. Yeah, yeah, and, and especially when when you have the kind of style that he does, a lot of times it doesn't even need the drums. I mean, his stuff with just him and his acoustic is great, you know. And yeah, totally. And and honestly, he's one of the few artists I could listen to for an hour just him and his acoustic. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, if you look at it and all the live footage I've seen of him is just him doing that. It's him up there finger-picking, which he's a fairly solid finger-picking player. And, you know, the instrumentation as it's presented on the album is stripped away, and it just seems to be him and his guitar and his voice, and he's got a really good voice. Um, Yeah, that's another thing I would say about this album. Besides for the drumming, the... uh a lot of the finger picking stuff is gone on it and there's a lot more kind of just strumming and uh stuff on it yeah there's some of that too but i guess it's i guess the songs that i liked the there was still a little bit of finger picking on it. i guess that's why I, I noticed it but you're right there is more strumming yeah the uh well uh, and the couple that i liked sounded more like his old stuff i mean you know you can't can't fault an artist for wanting to try new things and experiment i mean that's part of being an artist but you also have to expect your fans not to like it when you do try something new (laughs) yeah and i mean i well kind of like i told you i had a hard time listening to this as an entire album which is funny since again lp stands for love and play the old thing that they used to call vinyl back in the day and so it gives the impression that this is meant to be listened as a single piece of music, um, which we do album reviews, so we get that, and we listen to albums as a single piece of music. But this one was hard, man. And going back, and I thought that it worked better in small doses. I could pull a, a track and listen to it and kind of enjoy what was going on, even with the, the flourishes that were added. Whereas when I was listening to the entire album, I would it, it, too, it was too much. Frankly, yeah, I, I, I just I, didn't enjoy it. And and 
you know, after you sent me that message about trying listening to it in small doses, I tried to listen to it that way and still couldn't make it through the album. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I, as much as I enjoy John Moreland, I just do not like this album. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much me, too. Um, it should be noted that this is one of the first albums in which he is not the sole producer. Um, he had Matt Pence of Centromatic um, as a co-producer on this album. Um, were there any songs that you liked? Um, yeah, I liked... Uh, I actually liked the last track, Let Me Be Understood. Yeah. and But... Once again, it just it sounded like his older stuff. It didn't have the drums and stuff in it, and it was more of the finger picking on the guitar, you know. Yeah. And then I also liked, uh, kind of enjoyed the second track. I thought it's just a passing train. No, that, that one is one of mine too. And that, actually, it, I thought the stuff that he added to that worked. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. That one was pretty catchy. Um, and, and let really, me be those, those two were it. That was all I liked on it. Let me be clear and just to, to say this again, that if you listen, just if you could isolate just his vocals or if you just read the lyrics, every song has lyrics that I, stuff that I really like, every song. Yeah. Um, but I'm with you. Uh, I, I thought it's just a passing train. It's, it's really good. Um, what? Uh, I was also like I always let you burn me to the ground and let it me be understood and mm, harder dreams I, I'm ambivalent about because that you know that's the opening track and as I was listening to it I was like I'm not sure about this but lyrically this is such a great song yeah. and that was kind of the vibe that carried through the rest of the album. I got, yeah, I yeah, I agree with that. That's kind of how I was too listening to the first track. I was like, all right, he's trying something different, but you know, it's still John Moreland, you know, and I don't know. And then he just lost me somewhere along the way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to sum it up. He's trying something different. It is still John Moreland. Uh, your mileage will vary. And after my first listen through and texting david i told him that this felt like a critic bait album because if you look at any critic like the the npr's rock critic um what is his damn name ken tucker he loves this album and he you know heaps all kinds of praise on it being so experimental and so you know restoring the well-brewed grooves of singer-songwriter stuff. And I was like, yeah, like, fuck off, Kentucky, for one thing. <laughs> well, see, I've got I've got a friend on Facebook that I've seen that posted about how much he was loving this album, you know, the day yeah. after it came out. He was just talking about how, how great it was and stuff like that. But I, I, um, another thing that I didn't like about it was a lot of the songs musically sound happy while the lyrics are depressing. And yeah, and and I just I hate that. It's one of the things that drove me nuts about '50s pop music. You know, everything uh -huh. was so happy, and the lyrics would be about people dying or you know. <laughs> and, right, right. And, and I don't know. Well, there was a strand of that on his last album too, "Big Bad Love." I think that that he was getting a lot of pushback from Hollywood. There's that sad bastard, uh, John <laughs> Moreland, and so uh, 
<laughs> I think he kind of adjusted his musical style without really adjusting his lyric writing. Okay. <laughs> I can see that. I'm, I'm honestly not sure if I've listened to that album all the way through, so okay, I can. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> would you play a track of the song for somebody to introduce them to John Moreland? Because normally, I guess we ask, what is the song that you would play to introduce somebody? I know this is the song I would play for somebody to introduce them to John Moreland definitely would not be on this album. Yeah. Me too. Um, I mean, I think that those three songs, three or four songs that we both mentioned, the two you mentioned, and then I added like one or two, I think those are good songs. I think they're solid. Um, I don't know that I would put maybe that second album, The Passing Train, when I might would add that one to a playlist, but I don't think I would anything else. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, uh, I'm going to delete this from my phone. Once this podcast is over, <laughs> but um, the, I mean, if I was picking a song that I would play for somebody, it would be Cherokee. Yeah, no, that's great. I think um, I, I think that's that's my favorite song by him personally. But that would be high on the list. I mean, there's some others that I would play. Um, I like blues and kudzu and gospel, but Cherokee really. Yeah, that's a, a damn American flags in black and white. I like that one a lot. So yes, there there are several other albums of of stuff. I, I think it would be very. Uh, that is actually something that I think would be interesting. If somebody listened to this one and decided to dive into his back catalog, what their reaction would be. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, that's always something I'm kind of curious about when an artist changes direction heavily you know and, and some somebody picks them up after they've changed direction and then they go back and listen to the other stuff what do they think compared to somebody who was listening to their early stuff and you know yeah totally um i guess let's grade this thing and, and be done with it <laughs> uh yeah um uh, this is getting a pretty low grade. Uh, I'm going to go like a D. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. D for delete from my playlist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and wonder... you know, it, it just kills me to say that because I do like the guy so much as an artist. Oh, me too. Yeah, I'm a huge yeah. fan. And that's probably part of it. If it was somebody that I really didn't care that much about, I might actually think a little bit more of the album because I just, in some ways, feel let down because I was yeah. so excited for a new John Moreland album. Yeah. It was almost like the first time you listened to Metallica's St. Anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But even then, they'd had a, you know, a couple of albums to, to ease you into the, the downward <laughs> trend there. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what are we doing next time? Uh, the next one is going to be Red Shahan, Men and Coyotes. And hopefully we like it better than this one. Yeah, I hope so. That's getting back into that Red Dirt music. So. Yeah. And, Which I guess uh, you could consider Moreland Red Dirt, or at least his earlier stuff, Red Dirt, too. Um, I don't know. His stuff, I'm not sure it's enough. enough has enough rock influence to really be putting the Red Dirt stuff. 
That's that's probably fair. I was just thinking geographically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, geographically, for sure, he's in that red dirt area. Yeah, yeah you're probably right. I mean, uh, I I might would argue that some of the tracks on High on Tulsa Heat have enough um, rock influence, but they're not deployed in the same ways. So you're probably right. It's probably not actually red dirt. Yeah. Uh, when I when I think of Red Dirt, I always think of you know Stony Larue and Jason Boland and uh, Whiskey Myers and you know yeah. bands like that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're just really curious or a big John Moreland fan, give this album a listen. If not, I think you can let it pass. But join us again next week. I don't have nothing more to say. How about you? I, I honestly wish people would li- listen to it and tell us what they thought. I would like to – I'd be curious to know, especially yeah. people who aren't familiar with him. I would yeah. be really curious to know what they thought. Oh, definitely. I always you know, hope to hear feedback from people who've listened to our reviews, whether they agree with us or disagree with us. Because you know, quite honestly, a lot of the, the people that we've covered don't have that many listeners. So I'm hoping it will inspire some people to go out and listen to those albums. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, – yeah, that's, that's a real good point. Because yeah, we're definitely reviewing people that the majority of people don't know. These are these are people who have no radio support, and uh, you know, no CMT support. Um, so well, yeah, even Moreland as as you know, I mean, like I said, he's getting covered by NPR and Rolling Stone and everything. I don't think I've ever heard one of his songs on the radio. <laughs> yeah, for for sure. Uh, I mean, I've seen him on Sirius XM on the outlaw country but oh yeah um, yeah what's funny about rolling stone coverage and stuff like that is I, i've seen bands getting hyped in rolling stone about how great they were and gone to their shows and there'd be 50 people there yeah you know so that's a that's a really weird thing you would think a magazine like that with that kind of coverage would be hype that's hyping a band that they would be on the verge of breaking you know kind of pulling in a few hundred people or you know yeah we would think that <laughs> I mean, I guess with the digital platform these days, it's one thing to get some coverage in it, then another thing to be on the cover. It doesn't mean as much as it used to. Yeah. Um, that that just brings up another thought that I never thought about. If you remember back in the day, back you know, you go back to the 50s or whatever in the 60s, a band would have huge radio coverage and wasn't pulling any live shows you know they'd be touring little civic centers and stuff even though they were a huge band on the radio right and has digital streaming kind of started to turn bands back to that where where mm. they have a huge following and and but people aren't going to see them live Ooh, that's a really good question i don't know i hadn't really thought of it um i, I know at least locally the younger generation uh-huh they're not they're you know they're not putting on shows themselves the way we our generation did, you know, yeah. as far as going out and booking stuff and getting their bands known. I don't know of any local bands that aren't from my generation. Right. I'm sure that there are some that are, you know, on SoundCloud or Bandcamp or something, but I think you're probably right. I think there's a, is something to that, that it's so easy to distribute your music these days that you really don't, that you probably have to... Well, I think there's two folds. So let me back up just a second. I th- one, I think it's that you 
there's enough technology out there now that you don't have to have a band of people to make songs. Not that you ever really did, but they can be much more complete songs than if you were just a guitar player and, and you wrote something and were playing it. And you can distribute it so much easier that I think you you have that perhaps touring is just more of a hassle early on because you would have to get backing musicians to go with you, you know, and hmm, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Yeah. I, I mean, I can name two artists easily that uh, were just posting videos of them playing their instrument and singing on YouTube and, and developed enough of a YouTube following that they signed major label deals. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of an, kind of an interesting topic that I never really considered before. Yeah. Cause I, in some ways I, I see it as both because I can see where it makes it more feasible now to go on, on little tours and play for 20, 30 people, you know, 50 to 75 like in the 50s and 60s where as opposed to you know in our generation where you if you weren't attracting well or even like you know the punk guys in the early 80s who were blitzing all over the country playing shows for $25 a night and just barely making it but were building a name for themselves um so I don't know if there is a drive to do that these days as, as there was then since you can distribute your music so much widely and it's so easier to get to. You don't have yeah. the radio stations and the record companies as kind of gatekeepers anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're, what you're talking about with the punk guys, those guys, the reason that they were doing that for $25 a night and making and doing that was because that was the only way they could get their music out there. Right, exactly. <laughs> selling them at, at selling CDs at their shows and stuff like that. But now with the internet, it's so easy to distribute that nobody really needs to go out there and hit the road and play those small shows. Yeah, yeah. Or if they're doing it, they're just doing it because they like to play. I mean, I mean, I think there is something like that article you sent me, or Jason Isbell said, you know, or no, it was Sergio Simpson. It was Sergio. Yeah, said, you know, get a little band, go out there, play a, a bunch of dates and learn your craft and, you know, play your ass off, which I do think is probably still the best way to become a really good musician and, and develop a really tight sound. Um, so I, I don't know. That. There's also there's also nothing like getting the reaction from strangers to your music as compared to letting your friends hear your music. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Two, two different reactions. That's true. Yeah, getting a, a reaction from a live crowd is, uh, I mean, there's a reason that people come addicted to it. Hmm. Well, if you no. have thoughts on that, you know, just let us know, because I, I do think that that is an interesting tangent, because I do have a sense that, and maybe it's just because I, I'm in a larger metropolitan area now where there are plenty of places to play. I do think that people are still playing. I don't know about the, the big... Um, nationwide tours or guys blitzkrieging across the country in a van like black flag did um but i i kind of think that like when we're talking about david allen where that dude's playing shows and bars all the time it's just in a very small geographic area relatively i mean it's i'm sure those are long ass drives because it's over in the dakotas and minnesota but you know it's, it's not the same as going from california to to 
Washington, D.C. and back. Yeah, that's that. Well, that was kind of what made me think about it is because people, I mean, people like Coulter Wall that are making major waves yeah. never come close to close to my area unless it's at on a festival, you know. Right, right. You know, they're never coming here playing a solo show, which is which is crazy to think that a, that a person like that 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 is making those kind of waves just can't pull a live crowd in. Yeah an area close to me you know when i when you figure yeah, i've got st louis and louisville and nashville memphis yeah all in about three a few hours right here yeah you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and and i can't get most of these artists well it's really surprising most of these artists in, in some ways because uh, you you think of nashville the the general consensus around the country is still thinking of that as the the home of country music so you would think more country artists would go there but it, that really doesn't seem to be the case well, it actually seems to be the opposite between mo- among most of the artists that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. It's almost like they avoid it. I mean, I, I, that there are reasons, and I don't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. We uh, there's actually one artist. We'll probably end up doing one of her albums that moved to Nashville and ended up moving away because she couldn't make it. <laughs> well, I mean, shit. That's the the old Willie Nelson refrain, you know, he moved to Nashville and kind of toured around as a songwriter and was all clean cut and everything and got fed up with the machine and moved his ass back to Texas and became the Willie Nelson we all know. Yeah. Very cool. An interesting thought and conversation. So yeah, just hit yeah. us up. We'll talk yeah, about we it. Went on a real, we we're a real wide tangent there at the end, but hey, it's still a great <laughs> topic for conversation. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Especially when you're talking about modern country music and, you know, well, I think that goes beyond country music, to be honest. I think that's probably a, the way for a lot of genres. Um, yeah. Uh, that's probably right. And, and uh, I, could, I could rant for, for ages about kind of this topic, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. About artists who, who I, I saw when they were pretty much nothing and loved their music. And then they got a little bit of popularity and completely changed their sound. And yeah, you know, well, I think that's a conversation we ought to have because I can remember, and we kind of alluded to it here in all the shit we gave Metallica, you know, the first load record (laughs) because they changed their sound so drastically and not just their sound. Actually, I don't think it was so much the sound as it was their image because that's what made it seem like they were fucking, um, pandering is because they like started wearing feather boas and, and bullshit. If they just changed their sound I, a little uh, bit, uh, that didn't start happening until after Load did it. When they I started actually, when they cut their hair and got the tattoos and you know stuff like that, that wasn't until around Saint Anger, was it? I thought it was Load, but maybe not. Because I remember, I remember you know you had the Black album that was much different from the previous stuff, but it was still a good album. Yeah, and no. then you could I, I could see the first load album as a trans as a natural transition from where they went, and then load two and Saint Anger though. Yeah, well you could take load and reload and make one really good album off of it. I, I maintain that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think it was load that when they cut all their cut their hair off and everything. Maybe they didn't get quite as weird, you know, and or weren't worried that. I, I, whether they the feather boat or whatever, yeah, but they cut their hair for, for love. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, yeah, they probably. It was when they started getting the tattoos and stuff, and 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 they had been so anti-tattoo before that. Yeah. Um. Right. I mean, and and you know, I do think people have the the right to to change. It'd be weird if they were still making kill them all over and over and over again. Um, because I think that there is something to artists have people I mean I'm not the same person I was in 1983 thank God um, so not no. yeah. and yeah an artist has the right to evolve and try new things like I said mm-hmm. but your fans aren't necessarily going to like that oh no and I don't think that you but think... you take a band take a band like Whiskey Myers what are they like six albums deep into their career and you look at the you look at the album no album sounds the same you know there's not really any songs that sound the same they but but they all sound like whiskey myers but you can see you can still see a development and an experimentation even though they all still sound like that band <clears throat> instead of taking a completely left turn and sounding like something completely different yeah yeah, I guess that's the thing, especially if there's not like a long hiatus between albums. I think if you have like five, six, seven years between albums, that it makes more sense for the you just come back and sound completely different. But if it's only been a couple of years and you are radically different sound, that is just very jarring. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that too. I'm trying to now, I'm trying to think of a band that had an extremely different change that was still well accepted. Slayer. Um. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. How about Anthrax too? They changed vocalists, so I think that's a little bit different. Well, but stylistically, the change from Persistence of Town to Sound of White Noise, even though it was a different singer. Yeah. Well, we know how I feel about both of those albums. Uh, <laughs> I like them both. I preferred the John Bush Anthrax era to the um, Joey Belladonna. But I do think that when you have, that that is a good point that they changed, not just singers, but the the musical sound. Um, But I think when you, I think people put so much emphasis on a lead singer that when you do change singers, that you can kind of change your sound and people aren't going to freak out as much. Um. Yeah. I mean, think about Van Halen from David Lee Roth to Sammy Hagar and then to Gary Sharon and how terribly that went, even though that was musically fairly good. <laughs> some of the, actually better than some of the stuff that they did with uh, uh, Van Hagar. You could almost say the same thing about Molly Crew when they, the album they did without Vince Neil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for real. That is a underrated album. <clears throat> of discussion that could be had here yes there is <laughs> we can talk for two hours <laughs> without a doubt <laughs> without a doubt but yeah no I do, I do think that um, uh, just to kind of go back to, to what I was going to say I do think that it's both that, that artists do have a right to change their sound but that does not make your old fans to be holding to accepting your new sound oh yeah so. and I think 
And I think some artists almost get offended when their old fans don't like the new sound. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure they do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I know they do, but <laughs> some of them. Yeah, uh, well, Metallica. <laughs> yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> but yeah, a great conversation, a great conversation that can be had. And uh, I think we've had a pretty good one, even though we've gone pretty far afield from that LP5 album. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, and maybe someday we should have a podcast that's strictly the a discussion of the state of music and I'm I'm down for it. I would love yeah. to do that. Yeah. Just let us know if you'd like to hear that. Because I would be very happy to do that. Well, <clears throat> join us next week and see what we roads we take other than the album then. 